Helps if I turn on my mic. Good morning, West Park. It's good to be with you and to worship with you this morning. I appreciate so much our team who led us in music and worship, and we continue in our worship now as we direct our attention to the Word of God. And if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you have not already. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be focusing this morning in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, one of the things that I enjoy doing is working through a grocery list and getting everything on the list. <laughs> Just yesterday, I went to the store and I was going down through the list and I was getting the things that my wife put on there. And I was, I was happy. I was, I was working the aisles. I was getting everything I needed. I even picked up an item or two that I had observed that we were out of that were not on the list. <laughs> and I put them on the list. Doesn't that feel good, men, when we do think, things like that? So I, I get the things home, and, I, I, and the, the kids help me bring them in, and we put them out on the table, and I said, hey, I've gotten the stuff. And she thanked me, and she noticed I even got olive oil. And she's like, oh, we needed that. I was like, I know. <laughs> so I, I was feeling good. Went to bed that night. I could get a good night's rest knowing I'd done my job. But I woke up this morning. And the first thought in my mind was, oh, I forgot maple syrup. <laughs> That's important. That's really important. And I don't know why it hit me right then, but I was probably already thinking about the toaster waffles that were calling my name. No matter, no matter how hard I try to work my way through the list and check off everything and get it all done, it, it seems like there are always occasions when I miss something. <laughs> I'm hitting a lot. I'm, I'm striking a chord this morning, I think. What does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? As we consider what the Lord has opened up to us so far, he, he opened the gate wide and he talked about the blessed life. That that happiness, that joy, that fulfillment, that wholeness that comes as we do things the kingdom way. But then he also said, think of the influence that you can have if you're doing all of those things or if you are all those things and what impact you can have on other people. But then the process of his presentation where it was wide and it was talking about the broad outreach of what we could do gets very narrow. And what we feel this morning when we read this text is a bit of that tension, perhaps, that I woke up with this morning. <gasps> when I hit this text in Matthew 5, I begin to process through what it really means to follow Jesus, what it really means to be a part of this kingdom that he says must be entered into. And he has the key in this text about how to enter into it. It's very interesting what Jesus does in these four verses. Someone has said this is one of the most simple things that Jesus says in the entire Sermon on the Mount, but it's also one of the most complex. And as I studied it this week, I agree. But I don't want that to intimidate us this morning. The words of Jesus, if, if nothing else, which they are many other things, are very clear. Jesus doesn't mince words. But we need to give due diligence to understand what he has said this morning. The sermon title this morning in our series, Life in the Kingdom, is the key to the kingdom. 
want to focus on the key to the kingdom. And I want to say this, you know, it's, it's a little more intimidating than a grocery list when it comes to the things that Jesus says he requires and demands. He says that righteousness is the key to entering the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness is the key to entering the kingdom of heaven. And in our text today, that has a lot to do with the law of God. You might be wondering this morning, what does God's law have to do with me if I claim to be a Christian this morning? And I would tell you that Jesus lifts up the law of God and he highlights it as front and center important in the life of his followers. He's not getting rid of it. He's come to fill it up and to present it. And he calls on us to have a righteousness in verse 20 that is greater than the righteousness of some of the most religious people around. So talk about keeping a list. Talking about checking it twice, but then waking up in the morning and realizing you've missed some stuff. What would it be like someday when the kingdom of heaven has come and it's time to enter in and you find out that there are things you haven't done? I want to present that this morning as some tension that you need to feel, and I hope by the end of the sermon to relieve that a bit and to show you that Christ has done all to fill this righteousness and to give us all that we need to live in his kingdom. He's given us the key. So we're going to look at two things this morning, two points. Verses 17 and 18 are really all about Jesus's interaction with God's law. He's going to help us understand his position on it. And and that point here is called the righteous standard of the kingdom. And then in verses 19 and 20, he shifts from his own interaction with the law and how he treats God's law. And he says, this is how my followers must interact with God's law. And for that, we're talking about the righteous requirement of the kingdom. So let's dig into this. The righteous standard of the kingdom in verses 17 and 18. Here's what those verses say again that Pastor James read to us this morning. It says here, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When Jesus interacts with God's word, he says that it is the righteous standard of his kingdom. What's interesting is by this point in the sermon, Jesus hasn't said anything up to this point about God's law. When he mentions it in the text here, he talks about the law and the prophets. We're going to dig into this and figure out what Jesus meant by this. Why is he talking about this now? Well, he uses that phrase, do not think, right? That's his, that word think means to presume or to suspect, right? People were listening to Jesus preach and what they were used to were guys who would say, thus says the Torah, And they would go back to something that we would know as the Old Testament. They would draw from it. They would speak it. They would interpret it in some way and lay it on the people. And that was the authority they used. They didn't speak without it. And here's Jesus coming and talking about all kinds of blessed states, blessed this and blessed that. And the people are hearing it with great joy. 
Because by the end of the sermon, they conclude nobody preaches like this man. He preaches with authority. Some have wrongly concluded that Jesus is throwing God's law out. That he says, all right, now that I'm here, all that old stuff has nothing to do with what I'm doing. But nothing could be further from the truth. So Jesus says to the people listening, don't suppose or don't presume that I have come here to throw out God's Torah. I have not. I've actually come here to fulfill it. You see, this phrase that he uses, the law and the prophets, was code for the entire Old Testament. The law was known as the Torah. That was the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the prophets was anything from Moses to Malachi. See, the prophets were the men who came to reinforce what God's law said and were so often sent out to call disobedient people back to the worship of the one true God, to correct something that they were doing. So when you read Isaiah or when you read Jonah, when you read Malachi or Moses, that's what they are doing. And Jesus would have included even the books of Psalms and Ecclesiastes, the, the history of Israel in the prophets. These were all men who were writing in an attempt to bring back the errant people of God. And what were they calling him back to? This is crucial for you to understand because when the word law is used, you, like me, probably start thinking of dusty courtrooms and judges and verdicts of guilty passed down to criminals. But when the word law is used here, it's the English translation of the Greek word namas, but in Hebrew, it's the word Torah. And to Jesus, the Torah would have contained the story of God's creation of the world and God's creation of a people for him to love and the establishment of the relationship that he established with those people. So when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, he's referring back to, yes, the laws as we know them in the Old Testament, but the big picture is of the story of redemption and love that has been told by God through every generation of humankind. And when Jesus says that he has come in support of that, not to throw it out, but to actually fulfill it, he's saying that this is the basis of his own authority. He's not coming and arguing that God's law was wrong. And this is going to be very important when we get into the middle of chapter 5, when Jesus begins to say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. It's a wrong interpretation to say Jesus is interacting with God's law and saying, God's law says this, but I tell you this. That's not what Jesus was doing. It becomes clear by the end of verse 20 that Jesus is trying to expose what the Pharisees and the scribes in the culture were doing to God's law, and the conclusions and interpretations they were making were wrong. And they were leading people into bondage. So Jesus has come to clear all that up. And so he spends a little bit of time, just these four verses in our English Bible, to help us come to a better understanding of his own interaction with the law and the prophets. You see, Jesus says that they will not pass away until heaven and earth do. They are in force until heaven and earth pass away. That's what the text says 
Verse 18, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So I think one thing to realize this morning is that the, the Jewish law, the Torah, the Old Testament, is not merely for Jews. It's not merely for the people who are listening to this sermon. Some people conclude that the Sermon on the Mount was only applicable to the people of this time who were hearing it, but that age has passed. Why focus on it for an entire sermon series if that was the case? It would be good history, but no, we're talking about current realities. And so when Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, meaning the, the least letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the yod, and not a dot, that would be like a seraph in our language, one little line on the end of an eye to make it look more boxy on the top. He says, not even one of those will be taken out of the Old Testament until all is accomplished. Every last bit of it. Everything that Genesis to Malachi foretells, everything that it explains, everything it describes, and every example that it gives, it will not pass out of use until every bit of it has been accomplished per God's instruction. And for us, that means that we have a standard that has been set. For us, I think it's maybe one possible application to say that it's a shame when Bibles are printed and have only the New Testament in Psalms and Proverbs. You, do, you actually need the Old Testament to help you grow. You need the whole Bible to give you a well-rounded understanding of God's kingdom. And Jesus, though, he's talking in the New Testament and having come as the Son of God, his entire confidence was in the reliability and the usefulness of the Old Testament for giving us the instructions to follow God. And so I would say to you this morning at this point, each of us needs to evaluate how we interact with the Old Testament. I know that it can be discouraging sometimes to begin in January reading Genesis and get sometime in March to Leviticus and kind of fizzle out. Some of those things are hard to understand. It's true. But endurance in those things and reading it over time begins to build up in your mind, in your heart, the realities of a great God and what he has done to accomplish salvation for you. But this message is called the key to the kingdom. And in this point, I think if we have a key that's necessary to unlock the Old Testament, it's this key, that it's Christ who has fulfilled it. It is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 17 he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Jesus, in this verse, Jesus says in the clearest language, he hasn't come to toss out the law and the prophets. That's another error that I think Christians can get into and have in the past 2,000 years. We can conclude that since Jesus came, it's about grace, and that means we're forgiven of our sins, and we're not expected to keep the law, so anything goes as far as the Christian life. That is an error too. That's looking at the Old Testament and tossing it out. 
No, instead, we need to have a key, if you will, lenses through which we look at the Old Testament to best understand its meaning. And Jesus says that key is him. He is the key. The word he uses is fulfilled. And this literally means to fill something up. You think of a a cup that you could fill up to the top most possible level so that the liquid, if you bump the cup at all, would spill out over the top. This is what this word, plerao, or fulfill, is talking about. Jesus says he fills up everything that the Old Testament has says. Let me go through a few. He's filled up the Old Testament predictions. There's no way to go through all the predictions in the Old Testament about who the Messiah would be and to show it's Jesus. But there are so many. If it's from Micah 5.2, which talks about his birth in Bethlehem and how it was prophesied that he would be born in that city against all convention and reason, it happened. His earthly ministry was verified in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And Jesus went there and read that in the synagogue and said, what I have just read today in your hearing is fulfilled in me. That would have made their jaws drop when he said that. His death was prophesied by King David in Psalm 22. As you hear the groans of that one that David, through his own language, foretells. It was Jesus who was denied by all of his friends, who was placed in a place of shame, whose clothing was gambled over. Jesus is the one who was crucified. And he, if you can imagine those prophecies, building a frame, and you're not quite sure what the frame is going to be. And then one by one, when Jesus arrived, the prophecies, as you would read them in the Old Testament, whoa, Jesus checks that one off, and that one, and that one, and that one. It all begins to be filled. And as you go back and read the Old Testament, you see not just an outline or a shadow, you see a person. You see Jesus. Same goes for the Old Testament laws. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. If you stop and think about this for a minute, this is mind-boggling. The Son of God who existed eternally and stood in authority over the law as he gave it to human beings reveals, this verse reveals to us that the law was so important to God that it was so central and essential to his character and to his will that he could not look past it God the Father himself could not abolish it even for the sake of his love. He couldn't throw it away simply because he looked at us in our pitiful estate and said, I love you, forget about all that stuff. The law is established and firm. God can't just forget about it. And so what did he do? He sent forth his son, born of a woman, pivotal phrase, born under the law. Jesus himself came and submitted himself to all the laws of God. And in doing so, he obeyed them perfectly. But in this case, we hear about the cross. 
And the cross is not just a sentimental picture to us of how much we're loved. It is a real, gritty reminder of the price of disobedience and of the consequence of breaking God's law. As Jesus hung on the cross, we need to see the theological importance of that, that Jesus was punished as a lawbreaker. Despite his record all his life long, he was placed on the cross and punished as if he had broken all of the laws of God. Being placed under the law of God meant that he was responsible to keep it. And even though he did, he was punished as if he had broken every one of them. See, we don't, we don't know the full import of the cross unless we look back in the Old Testament and see the laws and know that it's crushing to try to live underneath all those laws. It's much worse than missing an item on a grocery list. Jesus kept them, everyone, and yet was crushed for our disobedience. Feeling the weight of the Old Testament laws and seeing how Jesus filled them up is an encouragement to us. We also read that Jesus fills up the sacrificial system. I can't spend a long time here, but when you read about the tabernacle, when you read about the temple, you see all of these things beginning to fill up your mind with these shapes, like literally shapes, like the altar, the priest in all of his garments, the curtain separating them from the most holy place, the ark, and the blood. These things give you forms. They give you types. But as the people in the Old Testament brought their sacrifices again and again and again, and the blood kept spilling and being applied again and again, in their minds they continued to think, when will this end? What will be the end result of all of this shed blood? When Jesus came and died on the cross, his ministry of life and death even his resurrection and presence now as a priest in the throne room of God, in the heavenly temple, he stands as having fulfilled all of that Old Testament sacrificial system. So much so that the ceremonies that were there are no longer required for us today. Sometimes theologians break down the law in terms of its civil authority, meaning that's what governed the people of Israel as a nation state. That's not in play for them now. There was the, the ceremonial law, which ordained how the temple should be run, how all the pieces of the furniture should be arranged, how the priests should be dressed. That has been likewise filled up by Christ and placed aside. We read it now but we read it through the lens of Jesus who has filled it up. And we see in all of those types, much like we are led to interpret in the book of Hebrews, all of that for all of those years is all about Jesus. And this is how important the shedding of blood is for the forgiveness of sins. He fills up the sacrificial system. And these two other areas, he fills up Old Testament history. When you read about Adam, and you read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Joseph, Isaiah. The history of these individuals points us towards somebody 
who would take the responsibility to represent us, to lead us, to minister to us, to rule us. In all of these histories, we see the outline faintly of somebody who could be better than these individuals. Even as we consider our own lives, so much of the Old Testament is relevant to us because we see people just like us living back then. But all of those people point towards someone even greater. And so that when Jesus came, he could see that someone, we could see someone greater than Solomon had arrived. Someone who was like Jonah had arrived. Someone who could look back like Joseph and then in the time that he came, deliver all of his brothers from their captivity. These are ways that Jesus has filled up the Old Testament and even the Old Testament wisdom with examples of the wise men throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. There's nobody like Jesus who knew how to put life together. Perhaps the best questions that were asked in the first couple of sermons that we preached in this series, both in the hub and here, is like, why does it matter to listen to what Jesus has to say? Because he fills up all of the requirements of the most wise. He knows how to put life together. And even if it seems counterintuitive to how we would live, like who wants to be poor in spirit? Who wants to mourn? Who would think it's natural to hunger and thirst after righteousness? But Jesus says, if you want to know the way to live the good life, that's it. I'm it. Trust me and follow me. Why would we do that unless he has fulfilled even the wisdom of the Old Testament and filled up what it means to walk in the most wise way in this earth? Can we trust him to guide us? The answer is yes, we can, because he's come to fulfill it. So when reading the Old Testament, the takeaway at this point is read it to see Christ Jesus. Read it to understand the nature and character of God. Read it to see what's required of you. Jesus does that. And in the second point, he says, the righteous requirements of the kingdom, in one word, is righteousness. Look again at verses 19 and 20. It says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These four words, these four verses, rather, hinge on that word, therefore, in verse 19. Jesus is saying, in essence, since I've established my authority, and since I'm helping you understand I'm not making this stuff up, but I am in line with God's revelation from the beginning, and I'm here to fill it up. Therefore, I say to you, the responsibility comes to you, my followers, to keep it and to teach others to do the same. If you loosen up some of the guidelines and rules, then you will be loosened away from the kingdom kind of imagine it's like a light bulb. You can kind of toggle a light bulb around a little bit to get it to work, but if you do unplug it all the way, it's no use anymore. All right, the imagery that Jesus is giving us, we can come back to in a little bit, but he's saying, 
It's, it's a crucial matter of your understanding. There is a righteousness that's required of my followers. And the righteousness, I think, can be a help to us to understand in four words. Let's look at the first one. Jesus says it has to be a greater righteousness. So to enter the kingdom, he says, your righteousness must be greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. If you know anything about the scribes and the Pharisees, on the surface, this is very discouraging news. You know, I, I've never been to Israel, but I know from stories that Pastor Sam has shared and others have shared, the, the ones who guard the Torah there and wear it on themselves dress according to their interpretations of the Bible, even today, are intimidating to be around. It's a heavy feeling when you see someone who is taking great strides to do what they think is the absolute standard of righteousness. In the day of the apostles and in the day of the disciples here in Matthew chapter 5, the, the Pharisees and the scribes had broken down the law and they found 248 commands of things that they must do and 365 prohibitions of things that they should never do. And they did everything they can to scrupulously obey each one. They arranged their lives so that how they dressed, where they lived, with whom they associated, how they interacted on certain days of the week would never interfere with or even come close to breaking one of those 600-plus laws. How would you like to attempt that? Now, I'm not, ad I'm not advocating that today. You know, and Jesus isn't saying, all right, go back in the Old Testament, and if you know the ceremonial law has been taken care of, you know the civil law is not applicable to us right now, then, all right, focus on the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and go through and underline twice everything that I say to do and everything I say not to do, and do your best to keep that better than the scribes and Pharisees. Is that what Jesus is saying? It is not. You know, but for Jesus to tell his contemporaries this on the surface, that would have been crushing news. Because the people who were the, the common fishermen and even the tax collectors who were there, they would have looked at Jesus and just felt this crushing burden, waking up in the morning and realizing, oh man, I forgot something, is a small taste of what it would be on the day of judgment for them. So Jesus is saying they need a greater righteousness. And here's what I would conclude. Jesus for sure deserves this, does he not? He definitely deserves that people forsake their sin and that they apply themselves to following him with their whole hearts. That's what he deserves. But I know that so often that's not what we're able and find ourselves sometimes even willing to give. So we need not just a greater righteousness, but I think what Jesus is talking about when he says exceeding the righteousness of those guys is a deeper righteousness. I think if we look at what Jesus does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and through the rest of Matthew, he gives the scribes and the Pharisees a really hard time. By the time you get to Matthew 23, you can mark that reference down and look at it later, he delivers woe 
after woe after woe. He's not, he's not like, whoa, you guys are righteous. No. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, you guys have fallen so far short of what God requires of you and of the people. And he calls them hypocrites. I mean, they think they're something, but they're blind. They don't know that they're not that thing at all. He calls them blind leaders of the blind. He says that they are whitewashed tombs. He says that on the outside, they're painted pretty, but on the inside of their lives, they're full of dead bones. You know, Jesus does not mince words. And sometimes we feel uncomfortable when Jesus addresses the Pharisees like that. Why does he do it? Because he is the judge who has come to establish authority in his kingdom. And he's not speaking that way because he hates those men. He's not a hater. He's not a canceller. You know, he comes because he loves the people, and the way to reveal their sin to them is to speak about it, to reveal it, and to sometimes even to shock them so that they recognize the righteousness that I say I have actually is not enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think what Jesus wants us to realize is it's not the question of enough, it's the question of the nature of the righteousness. One of the, the stories he tells in Luke 18 helps us in this way. That's Luke 18, 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice in a week. God only required like once a year. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is Jesus' commentary. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. We can't pause on this story too long, but it helps us to remember some things and to recognize some things. It helps us to examine in our own hearts whether we rest on our outside works or a deep awareness that we have none to appeal to in and of ourselves. You see, the, the Pharisee wasn't saying things that weren't true. He probably wasn't unjust or an extortioner or an adulterer or a tax collector. He probably did give tithes of everything he possessed even down to his garden herbs. But Jesus says, it's not a matter of the things that you have not done and the things that you have done. It's a matter of what you recognize about yourself and your heart. And that's why he holds up for our consideration the tax collector who stood off by himself and beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There was no trumpets blasting the righteousness of that man, but Jesus observed it. And as the judge, he made a declaration about that guy. 
He said, that man went down to his house, declared righteous rather than the other. See, the reality is, there's a righteousness that Jesus requires. And if it's to be exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we need to recognize a Pharisee's righteousness is all about what's on the outside. And this is the caution for you, my friends, and for me, I caution myself, is our good work record of what we do and the, the bad things we avoid what makes us feel confident before God? Do we bring the record of the accomplishments we've done and the sins we've avoided and say, I'm good? Or do we recognize that even in those things, we are guilty? Because even in our most righteous actions, we still stand before a holy God in need of a righteousness that we could never achieve on our own. You see, the, the Pharisees, they put up all kinds of walls around them and others so that they would not break God's law. They wouldn't even get close to it. But they missed fulfilling the law of God. They, in, in trying to avoid breaking it, they didn't do it at all. And when Jesus came, what does he look like to us in Scripture sometimes? Well, he looks kind of like a lawbreaker. He looks like someone who was going around picking ears of corn out of other people's fields on the Sabbath day, helping other people on the Sabbath day, working on the Sabbath. And a Pharisee would interpret that. And sometimes we might as well. Jesus was breaking God's law, but he wasn't. He came, yes, as Lord of God's law, but still under God's law. And his mission was to help people understand that God in his law is gracious to you because the Pharisees are leading you away from knowing God. But I have come to reveal him to you and to draw you close to him. We need a deeper righteousness. I need to finish up. He also says, in essence, that we need what I could call an imputed righteousness. Since our Lord declares in verses 17 and 18 that his mission is to fill up the law and the prophets... We have confidence that he himself accomplished the righteousness that we cannot. The word imputed refers to an exchange. And the best Bible verse to help us understand it in light of what Jesus is saying here is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's what that says. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, that's Christ, we, it's all those who have come to him, like the publican, the tax collector in the temple, God be merciful to me, a sinner, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, there's a righteousness that Jesus requires, and on the one hand, we recognize that we could never accomplish it. So the key to unlocking that puzzle, and the key to help open up the, the reality of God's word to relieve us a bit is to recognize that the righteousness that you and I need is an imputed righteousness. Sometimes it's called an alien righteousness, meaning not that it comes from outer space, that it comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from Jesus, 
And it's placed on our record before God so that as we live each day, we get up and we say, I want to glorify God today. And we would fail before we got out of the bedroom. But we can still have that goal. Why? Because God has given us the record of Christ. And we now know that we start each day confident in His work for us. So that as I set out to glorify God, I can glorify Him with the full confidence that He accepts Christ. And He has given Christ's record to me. That's the beauty of imputation. And I would say, in the end, though, we also need a practical righteousness. Jesus has told us in this sermon that he is calling us to the blessed life. He's calling us to enter into his kingdom. We enter in by recognizing that he is our king, our Lord, our savior, our sacrifice, and we receive him and we follow in his way. But I think he means in verse 20 that the righteousness he requires is not merely the righteousness that we receive from him, but because we receive that from him, we also receive the power to live lives that are pleasing to him. Here's what I think often happens in the Sermon on the Mount. We get to sections like we're going to reach next week when we, we think of anger and lust and divorce and telling the truth. And we just feel the, the microscope of Jesus in our lives and we have to admit, I get angry. Who of us doesn't deal with lust there's divorce everywhere. People don't tell the truth. I mean, these things that Jesus are saying are an impossible standard. Praise God that Jesus accomplished this. What in the world can this have to do with me? And I think we wrongly conclude that these things, maybe like the sermon would be, Jesus says, the Pharisees say this. Now I, Jesus, say this. Make sure you do this. But we can't, so thank you, Jesus, for doing it. No, there has to be a practical response from us, my friends. And it's not a perfect response, but it's a practical response. What is our confidence in this? The confidence comes from what God said in Jeremiah 31. Let me read this to you. Long ago he prophesied, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is called the new covenant. And the new covenant reality is this. The imputed righteousness that by the Holy Spirit takes place in the life of of a follower of Jesus, 
results in a practical righteousness. How? Because the work of God on the heart of a believer actually changes their stony hearts so that they no longer have to look at a standard on the outside of them, but they actually have this desire within them so that when they read God's law and say, this is right, this is true, God, I love you, I want to follow you. This is the reality of what should be, even now, Christ's church here on earth. But I think so often we give in to the wrong discouragement that there is no hope for us because of patterns of sin that might still be in our lives. Jesus' standard is not, eh, forget about it. But instead, his standard of righteousness is receive what I have fulfilled for you. Receive the work of the Spirit in your hearts so that you then can live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to the Father in heaven. Let me give you three statements that I think are helpful and that biblical counselors use all the time. The first one is this, when you wake up in the morning to say, my main goal today is to please the Lord. My main goal today is to glorify Him, to please the Lord. Secondly, I please the Lord by growing to be like Jesus. Right? That's true. I please the Lord. We know that Jesus pleased His Father. I please the Lord by growing to be like Jesus. And in the third place, God does not expect me to be perfect but he does expect me to grow. And friends, this is true for us in these weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't have a standard that is impossible to meet that you must be perfect in your own life and behavior, but God does expect you because of Christ who is perfect on your account and at work in you that you will receive the words that Jesus says and that you will commit to grow. Today I want to glorify God. I glorify God and please Him most by being like Jesus. And right now, I know God doesn't want me to be perfect, but He does expect me to grow. So the first step for you today may be to get saved. It may be to enter the kingdom. Maybe you're not in. You don't have this greater, deeper, imputed, and practical righteousness at work in your life, but you need it. You need to come and pray with someone today or pray right there in your own seat. Father, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. For Jesus' sake, thank you, Jesus, for all you have done for me. And then arise and receive the help that you need to walk in that new life. And you may need to confess something today, Christians, that you are living in a defeated way, that you are thinking wrongly, that there is no hope Maybe your sins are so deep or that your habits are so ingrained that you really can't please the Lord and it's too hard to try. With the help of Jesus and by his Holy Spirit, there is hope and you can commit to grow. Do that today. Father, help us. You are a merciful and loving Father and we need you. 
how merciful our King is to declare these words and to remind us where righteousness comes from, that standard that you've set and the requirement that you've made, but how Jesus himself meets that requirement fully and works it out practically in our lives. Lord Jesus, help us today. We turn to praise you now, but in the praising, if there is any here who needs to repent and yield to you, acknowledging that their good works are not going to cut it, that their righteousness falls far short, I pray that today they would repent and receive the forgiveness of Jesus and the promise of the new covenant. I pray for Christians here that they would yield to you and that today would be a recommitment to walk in discipleship and to receive your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.